Our Heavenly Father, I pray now this lunchtime that you would speak to us about your son and show us what life in him looks like. So I ask it in his name. Amen. Imagine for a moment that you are face to face with God and that he has asked you a question. It's probably the most important question that he could ask you. The question is this, why should I give you eternal life? I wonder how you might answer that question. Uh, Maybe it's something like this, I've lived a good life, or I give to charity, or I go to church, or I take communion. Maybe I don't steal, I I don't sleep around. I recycle. I've gone vegan. I wonder what answer you would give if God were to ask you, why should I give you eternal life? Those are the sorts of answers that a certain man from Mark's gospel would have given. In Mark chapter 10, we are introduced to a man who, by all accounts, is a good person. The gospel writer Matthew tells us that he is young. Luke tells us that he's a ruler of some sort. In Mark, the description of the conversation he has with Jesus shows that he is rich and he is religiously respectable. He seems to have it all. He's young, he's rich, he's powerful, he's respected, and it looks like he's got it all sorted. But he is also desperate to make sure that he's doing all the right things to be right with God. And that's how we meet him in Mark 10 and verse 17. As Jesus started on his way, A man ran up to him and fell on his knees before him. Good teacher, he asked, what must I do to inherit eternal life? An eternal life there, it means more than just not dying. It is what Jesus described as being right with God or or entering the kingdom of God or being saved. It's about being accepted by God and being given life instead of judgment that leads to death. But Jesus challenges the premise of this man's question in two ways. Firstly, he challenges the man's definition of goodness. Uh, So he replies in verse 18, Why do you call me good? Jesus answered. No one is good except God alone. How do you measure goodness? Jesus is really asking there. How good is good enough for God? You see, we can define goodness according to what is not really bad. Famously, the tech company Google had as its motto, don't be evil. 
And as we look at certain figures from world history, or even as we watch certain characters on television, we can be tempted to measure ourselves against them and to think, well, I'm not that bad. If our comparison is with them, or maybe even with the guy down the road, we can find ourselves feeling that we're doing okay. But Jesus wants us to think again. What if goodness wasn't defined by the most harmful or evil person who ever lived or the most grotesque caricature of a bad person that might be represented on TV? What if rather goodness was defined by perfection? What if, as Jesus is saying here, only God himself is truly good. Only those who are as good as God deserve eternal life. Well, Jesus illustrates the problem for this man. He goes on in verse 19. You know the commandments. You shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not give false testimony You shall not defraud, honor your father and mother. Teacher, he declared, all these I have kept since I was a boy. And that is this man's answer. I deserve eternal life because I've been good enough to obey these commandments. But has he? Jesus has listed some of the Ten Commandments, the ones about not murdering and committing adultery and stealing and so on. But Jesus has deliberately left out some of the commandments. He's left out the first four of the Ten Commandments, which have to do with our relationship with God. And he's left out the last one, which has to do with our relationship with possessions and belongings and money. You shall not covet, the last commandment says, which explains what happens next from verse 21. Jesus looked at him and loved him. One thing you lack, he said, go sell everything you have and give to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven. Then come, follow me. At this, the man's face fell He went away sad because he had great wealth. The Bible scholar William Lane says that the commandments of God are like a chain holding you as you dangle over an alligator pit. It doesn't matter which link in the chain it is. If one of those links breaks, then you're going down. And for this man... It was his love of money that was his weak link. He was quite proud of his performance in other areas of his life, but it becomes clear that he is not all good, not as good as he thought he was. When Jesus is asked which of the commandments is the most important in Mark chapter 12, He says the most important is this, love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind and with all your strength. The second is this, love your neighbor as yourself. 
There is no commandment greater than these. And as Jesus challenges this man to sell his possessions and give them to the poor, he demonstrates that he's falling short on both counts. He loves his money more than he loves God. He covers his possessions more than he covets doing what God says he should. And he wants to keep his money to himself instead of loving his neighbor by sharing with those in need. It reminds me of a scene from that kid's cartoon, The Simpsons. Uh, The billionaire power plant owner, Mr. Burns, says to his assistant, you know, Smithers, I think I'll donate a million dollars to the local orphanage when pigs fly. And they laugh. And then they look out of the window and they see a pig flying by. And Smithers says, Will you be donating that million dollars now, sir? And Mr. Burns replies, Hmm, no, I'd still prefer not. How much like our man in Mark chapter 10 is that attitude? At this, the man's face fell. He went away sad because he had great wealth. It's a stark warning for us, and it's one that I think we need to hear. For this man, holding on to his money was more important than inheriting the eternal life that God offers to us in Jesus. And look, I don't know what it might be for you. Perhaps it is money. Perhaps it's a relationship. Perhaps it's a certain set of ambitions that you hold on to. What is the one thing which you would not be willing to let go of in order to gain the eternal life that Jesus offers? How you answer that will reveal, well, both how far away from good you might be, but also even how far away from God. Uh, Now, if that seems shocking, in any way, then you're not alone. Jesus' disciples were surprised by Jesus' conversation with this rich man and what it revealed about life in his kingdom. Now let's pick that up in verse 23. Uh, Jesus looked round and said to his disciples, how hard it is for the rich to enter the kingdom of God. The disciples were amazed at his words But Jesus said again, children, how hard it is to enter the kingdom of God. It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for someone who is rich to enter the kingdom of God. The disciples were even more amazed and said to each other, who then can be saved? The penny is dropped for these disciples. We are none of us good enough on our own right, to be right with God. We all carry baggage. Even a well-behaved, religiously acceptable, respectable person, like that rich ruler, will fall short of God's perfect standards. Whatever bad things he avoided, whatever good things he did, he'd never be good enough to get into heaven. He had, as 
Each of us does a hard problem. And it can't be patched over with good deeds. Or it can't be covered over and wished away with the passage of time. The things that we do, that Jesus calls sin, are not just outward actions or behaviours that we can balance out somehow. They come from within us and they put distance between us and God. He said in Mark 7 verse 21, it is from within, out of a person's heart, that evil thoughts come. Sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, greed, malice, deceit, lewdness, envy, slander, arrogance, and folly. All these evils come from inside and defile a person. It means that we need to change if we're to be right with God. And it also means that we're not able to change ourselves. Uh, That's the second way in which Jesus challenges the premise of the rich man's question. He had asked, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus challenges him to think again. The question is not, what must I do? But rather, what must be done for me? You can sense the panic in the disciples' voices as they respond to what Jesus has said. The disciples were even more amazed and said to each other, who then can be saved? And they want to know how then, how can it be possible for people to be saved and to be right with God? If the good things that they do are never good enough. But Jesus gives the answer to them. Jesus looked at them and said, with man, this is impossible, but not with God. All things are possible with God. Do you hear that radical change in perspective? You see, following Jesus is not about doing things for Jesus or earning your place with Jesus. It's about receiving things from Jesus. It's not earned at all. It's given freely to people who are spiritually needy and helpless without him. There's actually a little illustration of how this works just before this encounter that we've read earlier in Mark chapter 10. And this conversation that Jesus has with the rich man and the disciples follows straight after an incident that involved some children. And so let me read Mark 10, 13 to 16. People were bringing little children to Jesus for him to place his hands on them, but the disciples rebuked them. When Jesus saw this, he was indignant. He said to them, let the little children come to me and do not hinder them, for the kingdom of God belongs to such as these. Truly, I tell you, anyone who will not receive the kingdom of God like a little child will never enter it. And he took the children in his arms, placed his hands on them and blessed them. Now, I don't know what you would make of it if I called you childish. 
It's not normally a compliment. If your boss at work tells you that you're childish, then you could be in line for a disciplinary. If your partner tells you that you're childish, you could be in line for a breakup. But Jesus says his followers are, well, not childish, but childlike. Now, back in those days, children were overlooked and undervalued. They were considered an inconvenience as much as anything. And you see that attitude in the disciples uh, as children are being brought to Jesus. We're told that they rebuked those who were bringing them. They wanted to keep them away from Jesus. They think that Jesus will get in the way that dealing with children is beneath Jesus. But Jesus corrects their attitude. In fact, it's quite the opposite. Far from wanting the little children to stay away, Jesus invites them to come. And he says, all those who truly come to him come like little children. It's important to see what it is about children that he commends. He isn't suggesting that children are somehow better or more worthy than grown-ups. Anyone who's spent any time with children will know that they are just as prone to breaking commandments as the adults are. Now, it's not ignorance and it's not innocence that Jesus commends in children. It's their dependence They're not able to do anything for themselves. They trust and depend on others for all that they have. And they receive all that they have as a gift. Little children don't pay for the meals that they eat around the family table in their kitchen or their dining room. They don't rent their bedroom from their parents. They don't earn the love that their parents show them. They receive those things as gifts. And Jesus says, that is what it is like to follow him. It is to trust that he is able to do for us what we cannot do for ourselves. It is to surrender ourselves to him, to depend on him and not on ourselves. The German reformer Martin Luther wrote that all of the religions of the world are the same at their heart. He wrote, this is the imagination of them all. If I do this work, God will have mercy on me. If I do not, he will be angry. Authentic Christian faith is nothing like that. It's the only thing that is nothing like that. It's the only belief system that takes the works of human effort towards salvation and counts nothing in their favor. True Christianity, uniquely, is totally different. The good news about Jesus, the Messiah, the Son of God, is that we cannot earn and could never deserve salvation from our sins. But in Jesus, God has done for us what we could not do for ourselves as Jesus gave himself to die on the cross in our place. We deserved punishment for our sin, which leads to death. But by dying in our place, Jesus took that punishment on our behalf so that all those who put their trust in him 
could have our sins forgiven, to have eternal life with him, with God. The Apostle Paul, in one of his letters in the Bible, put it this way. He said, God made him who had no sin to be sin for us, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. This speaks of a great swap taking place. Jesus took our sin upon himself so that we may take on ourselves his righteousness. It means that for those who are trusting in Jesus and following him, when God looks on us, he sees the perfect righteousness of his son, Jesus. We could never be good enough for God on our own terms. We can never do enough to make things right with God on our own efforts. We don't deserve it. We cannot earn it. But in Jesus, we can have forgiveness from our sins as a free gift from God. That's what the Bible knows as grace. And it's why the gospel, the good news about Jesus is good news. It means that although we are more sinful than we ever thought, we are more loved than we could ever have imagined. It means that we're freed from the painful effort of trying to earn our favor with God, but constantly falling short of it. It means that we're freed from the painful effort of trying to earn favor with other people, finding our security in the uncertain things of this world. We have been shown to have the greatest value that we could conceive of, to to have the God who made the world and who knows us inside out to give himself up to death out of love for us so that we could have eternal life with him. And that changes everything. But when you come to Jesus, you understand just how valuable you really are. When you look to the cross, it's as if Jesus is saying, this is what it costs to give that gift to you. This is how serious your sin is. And this is how much I love you, that I would die the death you deserve so that you might have eternal life with me. Come as a child, Jesus says. Come with nothing in your hands. Come trusting and depending on me, because I want you to have what you could never earn for yourself. That is the invitation of Jesus. It is the free gift of grace. And it's the invitation that he holds out to each and every one of us who would turn from our sins and trust in him.